Why would you ever do this for me? I'm a, I'm a speck on a speck in a sea of specks. Podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today is Eric. Hi, Matt. And Karen. Hi, Matt. And Tracy. Good morning. I'm glad you guys remember my name. That's a plus. It's it's actually printed on the screen. So. Oh, well, there's that. Thanks for bursting the bubble, Karen. On the upside, though, it's a gorgeous day, and and I think it'll be a fantastic day for us to do some uh, discussion on the Bible. So let's go there. Man, I'm all over the place today. Uh, (laughs) uh, We are, today we're going to be talking about 2 Samuel chapters 7 through 10 and 1 Chronicles 17 through 19. Now, if you've read these at all, uh, you've noticed that the Chronicles really, I mean, especially this week, I noticed it just seemed like a complete carbon copy of of Samuel. It's like whoever was writing down the Chronicles was uh, had had to have a, a book report of so many pages in and didn't think the teacher was going to read the book and and just uh, just wrote things down verbatim, word for word, with a couple of uh, different spellings of names and such. So, but. Uh, it was interesting. Occasionally, Chronicles would throw in some little detail that Samuel didn't have, and so it was still worth it was still it was still worth studying that. But we begin with David going to Nathan the prophet this week, and if you remember, back when uh, David was first becoming king of all of Israel, King Tyre, no, King Hiram of Tyre had sent David uh, a whole mess of cedar and some carpenters and, you know, workers to build David a house, which, you know, that's a pretty nice gesture. You got the the incoming ruler and uh, somebody decides to, you know, throw him a, throw him a little gift there and uh, build him this house of cedar. Can you imagine what a whole house of cedar would smell like? Ew, I can't stand the smell of cedar. <laughs> you wouldn't have any moths. No, or Karen. You wouldn't have any Karen either. Yeah, I mean, I think it would look. I think it would look really nice. But cedar. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Cedar. That smell of cedar goes a long way with me. Well, it, it, it dies down. I do some woodworking, and the smell is the most when it's fresh, and then it mm-hmm. does moderate. But it's beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, which I think is the point: is that David has this gorgeous-looking house that that uh, after a while smells kind of okay. But um, he's going to Nathan the prophet, and he has recognized that he's got this really nice house, and God is, you know, for discussion purposes, basically living in a tent. And that doesn't sit very well with David. And so he's talking to Nathan about this. And Nathan says, he says, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, that's the, this seems to me like Nathan hasn't really consulted God. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> Just off the cuff. Kind of sets uh, up David. Yeah. Yeah, because 
you know, with David being normally so willing and ready to talk to God, ask God's uh, opinions about things, you know, should I go attack the Philistines? Yes. Should I attack the Philistines? No. You know, all the time. And David was always asking God for these big things. And so you would think that when David comes to talk to a prophet about something very central to the Israel culture, like the tabernacle, uh, the sanctuary, whichever you want to call it, and Nathan, it just seems like Nathan, without without skipping a beat, just says, yeah, go do it. That sounds great. But what happens? Well, God comes to Nathan that night and says he has a message for David. And it's it's kind of interesting. He's, he, he's this message for David. It starts out, have I ever asked you for a house? Now, this doesn't seem like this doesn't seem like God is reprimanding. At least it doesn't to me, but it's just kind of a matter of, you know, that's that sounds great, David. But I, you know, I I didn't ask for this. You guys ever had somebody give you something that I don't even know, saying that you didn't want it, but you know, there's sometimes people give you something and they're like, they're they're really eager to see how you're going to respond to to a gift, and and um, you're kind of like, yeah, I never really, never really considered this. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. I went to a concert once with this is back in high school and somebody played. I was with my grandparents and somebody was playing classical guitar. And I said to my grandparents, wow, that'd be amazing. That's really beautiful. I'd love to be able to play like that. And so for Christmas, I got a guitar and I had to be honest with myself. Um, what I wanted to do was wanted to be able to play like that. I didn't want to do any of the practice that it required. Um <laughs> And I mean, that's a bit different, but, but <clears throat> I had this thing and as it turns out, my sister has played it, my wife has played it and some of my, and I still never have. It was a nice gesture. And I think this, yeah, seven is very, it's a very fascinating thing, especially the first half and David's reaction. It's interesting. You mentioned that, that Nathan just goes ahead and says, yeah, sure, go, go for it, do it. And Nathan is a man of God. We never get indications that he was outside of God's favor. And it's interesting that as we read God's conversation with Nathan for the purpose of David, I don't remember any reprimand for Nathan in here. Mm-mm. It was just kind of like a, oh, by the way, here's the real scoop and pass this on to David. It wasn't like, Nathan, you totally stepped out of line. You shouldn't have spoken up. As I read that, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe both as we speak and we say, hey, you know, I think God has impressed me to say this, or this is a thing that I think God would say. We need to either be, as ourselves, willing to say, you know what, I got some new light on this, and I'm going to have to change course on that. Very difficult for us humans to do. Extremely difficult, because it seems like once we've said something nowadays, that means we have to just stick with it to the very, very, very end. We can never change our mind. Saw a video this week on social media, little kid. Mommy, I want to eat this apple. Mommy, no, it's an onion. No, mommy, it's an apple. <laughs> um, mom, no, it's an onion. Kid, it's an apple. And you see a video of this kid just, he because he's insisted this is the deal, he's eating this onion. And it's obvious and it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And we seem to struggle with that ability to say, oh, you know what? What I said yesterday, not the case. I got some new light and now I'm going to change. And whether you talk about 
you know, apologies or politics or religion. Nathan, Nathan doesn't say, well, yeah, well, I told you that yesterday and God corrected me. So I guess I'm just going to leave and never deliver that because I don't want to look bad. He shows up and he gives this message. Also, David was willing to hear a change of course. Oh, well, he didn't argue with Nathan. Like, well, yesterday you said I could. And today, what's up with that? I guess I just don't believe that you're a messenger of God because you changed your mind. I've heard people do that kind of stuff, too. It's like, well, I mean, you used to say this, and now you can't change. Like, once you say something, you can never, ever change your mind. I'm like, oh, man. Hmm. That's a terrible framework for the world. It is. He kind of gave him carte blanche. So, so knowing... As we see David's character develop over this time, you know, he probably had some restless nights. His, his brain was going, you know, 100 miles an hour already thinking what he could do and what he can build. And I think at that point, you know, I don't just I don't think it was in his cards yet, you know, and I, I think that's why, you know, God was kind of more of, you know, I, I really didn't ask for this. But since you brought it up, you know, we can go from here. But I just don't think it was. So much his his mission, it wasn't it wasn't what he was good at. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. He still ended up designing it. I don't know if the you know the original design was adhered to one hundred percent, but you know I still think he had a part in it, and I think that's just a part of his journey. That you know once we kind of get ahead, and you know that wasn't your your overall job. Yeah, that's interesting because. It definitely seems like David has a different job here, and it's he's the one who kind of gets all the glory as being. I guess he's not the first king, obviously, but he's like the the greatest king. Everybody's compared to David from here out. But his job, really, it seems, was to do the job that the Israelites were supposed to have been doing for so long, and 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 pushing out the other the other people that were there. The dirty you know, ones. Yeah, the dirty work. He's the one who finally gets the Philistines out. He's the one who finally takes care of the. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about the Syrians and the Amalekites later. And um, yeah, he, he's he's the warrior. He's the fighter. He's you know he's what yeah he's what God needed right then for for the state of Israel. Uh, but isn't what Israel was always going to need, and it just wasn't it wasn't time it wasn't time for this. Mm-hmm. So, you, like you said, though, uh, God takes that and he kind of takes it into a different direction. He's like, well, yeah. while we're talking about houses. Yes. So he's like, I've never asked you for a house. But since we're talking about it, he says, I've made you to be ruler over my people, Israel. And he says from the sheep, which is an interesting. I've cho- I've selected you from the sheep. That's a that's an interesting thing to think about with of of a sheep, one sheep ruling other sheep or being selected out of sheep as being special being you know raised up above the others but he says i'm gonna make you a house so yeah what a cool turn yeah and you know when i was i'm reading this at first and i'm thinking but david already has a house he's got a really nice house and i'm thinking i don't remember ever hearing about you know any other specific house for david oh i get it now when we're talking about a house, we're talking about David's dynasty, his legacy. Mm-hmm. So God is saying, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a legacy for you, David." Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like a royal. It's like a royal um, equivalent of the promise of with Abraham, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So I just, for years back, or I don't know when, I, my Bible's pretty marked up, and I like it that way. I, from verse 4, or 5 actually, through 17, there are over 20 I, personal, personal, uh, you know, nouns there that God uses. I this, I this, I took, I commanded, I have moved, um, I will make, I appointed, I will discipline, I will, there are 20 I's. Mm. God is like, he's laying it down, who's doing what? Because David starts off, well, hey, God, I want to do this. And God says, okay, thank you. I did not actually ask for that. I appreciate your gesture, but uh, not something I need. And God goes on to remind him all of the things that God has done. And it's a really interesting thing. If you did this as a, in a past life, I was an English teacher. Okay, So if you wanted to, to, to break this stuff down as like subject verb, it's really fascinating. Who's doing what? You know, I speak. I have moved. I have been with you. You know, it's super clear who's doing the work here and outlines that God is, in fact, doing this. And he shifts to that really cool, thank you for offering to build me a house, but I'll build you a house. And like you say, Matt, it's a lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that becomes very, very, very important to Israelites, like all the way down through through Christ's time, which is an interesting thing because we see this word show up. Um, I've got it underlined at least five times from verse 13 all the way to the very last word of the chapter, forever, is this word forever. And I want to ask you all what do you think about this, because there's been these promises to David that um, you'll have no more trouble, um, your throne will be kept forever, and... All of these things that uh, these forever, 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 and does forever mean until something is finished, or until you break a thing, until until something else happens, or is that is that a conditional forever? Because we we start getting into prophecies here as we deal with some of this, and if we don't get this forever right, we end up with some really interesting theology because history doesn't establish the historical forever somebody sitting on David's throne ruling literal Jerusalem forever. So what do we do with that? I've always, when I read forever in the Bible, to me it's very seldom literal in the sense of a timeline, and it's more like until it's done. Now in this case, we know that Jesus came from the line of David, and so in that respect, it is forever that's, you know, a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, but still, Jesus, you know, came from that line. But yeah, my understanding of forever, like, you know, the lake of fire burns forever, and Sodom and Gomorrah burned forever, and you know what I mean? Like, things like that. And and it's, to me, it's always been more like, it happens until it's completed. Like, it's mm-hmm. not stopped short. Yeah. Well, as I was, interesting. Looking, I was go. doing some additional reading, too, and I think David was just kind of going on what he had known. Because if we go back to, I think it's in Deuteronomy, where initially the grand scheme of things was that they were going to set up their 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 nation 
and have a central location for worship. Yeah. And I think that's what, what David was shooting for. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It's it's never in man's time. It's in God's time. And mm-hmm. I think that's where he kind of just overstepped a little bit. He, he was overzealous. Maybe overstep isn't the, the correct word, but I think he was just overzealous about it. And I don't think that was in God's time. Well, as we're talking about this forever, I was noticing just here, I was looking at my notes and I had to, I had to, I had to make myself a little extra note to it because I had misinterpreted something in verses uh, 13 and 14. He's talking about, let's see, he's talking about David's seed. Actually, it starts in 12. Let's see. I will set up your seed after you. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My first thought was Solomon's going to build a temple and that's the house it's talking about but i got to realizing i had to, i had to change it because it doesn't ever say your son it says your seed and now i realize that that's probably talking about jesus and jesus builds the house build jesus builds something that lasts forever and and jesus really is that king over israel forever and and so there is a literal sense to it but there's also that figurative um you know, when we're talking about that forever, we're not talking about this earthly kingdom of Israel. We're talking about, I mean, yes, in the immediate sense, yes. Uh, but but everything shifts when Jesus comes. Now, David wouldn't have understood that. Nathan wouldn't have understood that right then. But wasn't it always conditional on obedience? Because yes. really, it didn't last for, with David's lineage, didn't last forever because as it continues to go on generation to generation. They pull farther and farther from God. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it was really conditional on obedience that yeah. it could be forever if you choose that. Yes. And I think that's a really important thing as we, I mean, we're not to Isaiah and so on yet, but that God's, there was God's, I believe, God's plan for how he wanted things to go. And then a backup for when things did not go that way is that Israel was supposed to. And, oh, man, there's a big, long list of supposed to's in there. But among the more core things is that they were to represent God to the people around them of the world. And they were to set up this house of prayer. And like Tracy said, back to Deuteronomy, they were to be a model of how things were supposed to go. Now, they dropped the ball many, 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 many times in many ways, as have we since then. And it's important, as we're reading these prophecies, there's a word that got thrown out. I don't remember who said it. Maybe it was Tracy or Matt or McCarran. I don't know. Because it's conditional. Conditional. Like, if, then. And we get that, well, man, we get this mixed up. And Jesus had to set a lot of this straight when he showed up and he's talking to people in Matthew. And he's he's saying, you know, you were, you were supposed to be the, this tree. But guess what? Any tree that doesn't bear fruit, it gets cut down and thrown into the fire. And we will give this mission to someone else. And the Jewish people were like, well, we thought this was forever. We are the ones. And God's, and God's like, you know, no, um, Chosen is as chosen does. And if you don't do this, then here's the result. And we see this. It's unavoidable 
throughout prophecy, especially as it pertains to Israel and these dual meanings. There's this, there's the here and now, just like we're just talking about the son of, um, of David, because what do we do with, um, with 14, I will be to him a father. It's like, oh yeah, that could be speaking of Jesus and he shall be me a son. Yeah, that could be when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. Well, Jesus didn't commit iniquity, but he bore iniquity. So we've got to be kind of careful as we're reading these things. Like, okay, so Solomon was disciplined. Jesus carried our burdens and he was disciplined. My point is, is that the Bible is in some ways very clear. And in some ways, there's another layer that if we're not looking for it and we're not careful with it, we can come up with a meaning that it doesn't actually say. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question here, because it's something I've always been curious about and never taken mm-hmm. the time to study. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, we've got King Herod. Yeah. Is is King Herod in the line of David? No. Okay. That's why he's so freaked out when he hears that there's a king that's born of David's lineage. He is freaked out because he is a usurper to the throne. Mm-hmm. And okay. he's like, I, <clears throat> he's not, he doesn't have any rightful claim to it by lineage. And here's this announcement of a new king that's born of David's throne. He's like, uh-oh, what am I going to do if the real deal shows up? Mm. And I think it's too the, still the same kind of clout that just mentioning David or being connected to David in any way kind of has the people with you at that point. And yeah. I think that's what kind of sparks it is like, you know what? My time on the throne might be limited because David is involved or the the lineage or family line of David is involved. Yeah, right. and that was yeah, and that that had, that was of course rubbed the the Jews of Jesus day wrong because they're like, we want out from under this. We want to rule and we want to have political power like the Israelites did in David's day. And this was a constant battle of Jesus as he's dealing with people, especially in the book of Matthew. It was, we see this more clearly. He's like, no, it's God's kingdom. Wrong kingdom, folks. Mm-hmm. You're thinking political kingdom. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about God's kingdom. And people were just, they just had a hard time understanding this because they were so dead set on having a political kingdom that they rejected the spiritual kingdom that was right in front of them. Yeah. And I have to say, there are many Christians in that same danger today. They worship politics and attend church. (laughs) There you go. Well, that, that really makes this whole thing kind of more fascinating to me, though, because a lot of times, like you say, there's those if-then statements where um, the, the conditional forevers. And it seems to me that in this case, God made this, he makes this statement, this forever statement. But in this case, it's where, you know, where, where men fail, God's already got a plan to, to, to take it up. Yes. Um, and and this one is going to be a literal forever, and God's going to make sure it happens. Obviously, obviously, God knows that men are going to fail. But uh, so you you have this you have this promise to David, this immediate promise to David. But it also 
uh, stems through eternity. It really, it, it really does this, you know, it's, it's this line of David that will, that will take things off uh, forever. And when Jesus comes, yes, he'll be a king, but not the way that people think. Yes. Are, and, and he will be that king of Israel, where, whether it's, uh, you know, in this case, then it would be a spiritual Israel, as we as, as followers of Jesus are part of spiritual Israel, which I've heard some people <laughs> complain about that phrase saying it's not in the Bible, which, yeah, you're not going to find the phrase spiritual Israel in the Bible, but you will find the concept pretty clearly. And um, and this understanding that that God, Jesus, is the king that will be there forever and will this will be established through him. And this is all going to it's all going to be his and he's going to take charge of it. Yep. Yeah. And it just you can't read the book of Matthew. I guess I should say this this way is that if you open the book of Matthew with the concept that there is a literal, physical, political kingdom, and then there is God's idea of what his kingdom is, and can you see Jesus contrast the two, man, all of a sudden it's kind of like one of those 3D puzzle things. It just pops out. It's like, oh, wow, yep, there it is. Because Jesus says, you know, over and over, I mean, Matthew 13, Jesus is saying, if they would understand with their heart and turn and I would I would heal them, he's talking about their hearts and he's talking about the difference between what's literal, like I'm a literal Jew or I'm a literal family versus what it is to be um, spiritually, you know, part of his kingdom. And this goes over. I mean, even John the Baptist was a little bit like, so are you like the one who's going to come and restore everything? And Jesus has to say, Ah, here's my mission. It's to, you know, bring vision to the blind and to make the lame walk and to preach freedom to those who are in prison. Because John was expecting a political savior as it was also. And anyways, I don't want to go too far into that, but this is important because it kind of lays the foundation of who David is, because this was a big, 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 big. That's why the book of Matthew starts with lineage, right? Remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like this person was this person because, like you said, Matt, this idea of you originated from David was a big deal. Mm -hmm. It was a really big deal. Well, I get fascinated with the way David responds to this. Yeah. Because he, he goes right into uh, verse 18. says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And I was as I was looking at this just now, it kind of, it kind of contrasts with me um when we get into daniel's time and and is it who got the who got the vision of the of the of the statue was it nebuchadnezzar yes yeah nebuchadnezzar gets this vision of this statue and god says oh this head of gold is you nebuchadnezzar and nebuchadnezzar takes that and is like wow that's awesome look how awesome i am even though the the prophecy that prophecy is clearly not, it's not, uh, you're going to stand forever. It's that uh, when you get down to it, it's ultimately, this is all going to get destroyed and God's going to be going to take over everything. But Nebuchadnezzar kind of takes a prideful tack at that one. And here David immediately goes to humility. Yes. Who am I? Who am I? And I mean, I, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how anybody who, who really has contemplated the nature of God could have any, kind of reaction 
to anything from God other than that. Why would you ever do this for me? I'm a I'm a speck on a speck in a sea of specks, you know? Yeah. And yeah. And so yeah, who am I? And just this 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 uh just this he just takes on just this humility or takes I mean that's his character. He's he defers to God every time. But yet and he's like, yet this is a small thing for you. I mean, this is nothing for God, and David recognizes that. You know, who am I that you did this? But yet, this is a this is a small thing in your sight, God. And he he says he says uh, I mean, just it just the, the whole thing goes on. It's it's the last part of the last half of chapter seven is David's. It's all David being thankful to God, and he he's he's talking about you know for your sake, according to your heart. I had that mark too. It's it's amazing because basically he says, "God, I want to do this for you." God shows up and says, "Hey, here's all the things that I've done for you." And in the end, it's like, "No." And then David turns back and says, "Thank you so much." And he's I'm like, "Wow, man, there's a lot for me to learn in there because I ask, and especially how hard it'd be like, "I want to do this favor for you," and somebody says, "No." Mm-hmm. And then David is still so thankful and grateful. Uh, that blew me away. I had that mark too. I'm like, man, I to have that spirit. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the things that he starts recognizing here, he talks about, you know, there's no one like God. He says, there's, there is, there is. How does he put it? There is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. You know, in a in a land where all these other people are all worshiping different gods and, you know, you're a people who have been brought away from Egypt where they had, you know, how many gods and everybody's looking at these things. And it's 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 still today. It's a thing that I see is everybody's like, well, which God should I follow? And David says what I always say. There's only one. There's only one God. The others are they're they're fakes. They're, they're you know, you either made them up yourself or. Um, or you've been fed a line of bull that, uh, to, to believe that, that there's any other God that could even have any kind of a actual significance compared to, to, um, no, the one we think of them as Yahweh or Jehovah. And they're like, there's there, you, you're the only one. You are the only one. He talks about, um, who's like your people. Who, who God redeemed for himself, which got me, you know, that, that has implications for us even now. When somebody goes out of their way to do something at the level that God did for redeeming people, and I'm talking about Israel and David's time, and I'm talking about uh, our time as well. If you have been called to God, and if you've answered that call, and you find yourself in that redeemed class, if you will, you are among a very special, uh, I'll even use the word elite, people on this planet. But like David, we have to maintain that, that spirit of humility. Like, yes, I have been chosen by God, and yes, he called me, and I answered, and that makes me special. But, but at the same time, I'm still, like I said before, I'm a speck on a speck of a planet in a sea of specks of the universe. And I am so small compared to what God encompasses, but yet he's chosen me. And that, that is, uh, that's just got a lot of really deep implications in my heart 
and I would hope others have that same that same sense of awe of being chosen by the God of the universe when uh, he could have simply just ignored us, snuffed us out, forgotten about us, just let it go. Yeah, I think that chapter seven was the of the reading that we did today was the was the biggie. That was the one that just had the other ones have some inter- interesting chronological history, but this one was the one that was this chapter really spoke to me about our place in the universe and God's place in the universe and um, some just some really amazing kind of deep philosophical things going on there. Yeah. Those are those are the those are the things that just make me sit back in my chair and my mind just wanders and and you know thinking about just the vastness of God and what God is and you know you take those moments to try to meditate on that and you realize that it is it's like it's like I mean I guess the biggest greatest thing I could probably compare it to and maybe Tracy you've got a little better aspect on this than me uh, having been in the navy but like if you jump into the ocean and you stop to think about how deep that is that's right. and and you know and even that doesn't compare no and but you see my analogy is that when you sat there and really think about how far down it goes it's just not your regular backyard pool that mm-hmm. it's it's huge and you realize just how small you are yeah yeah, and you're you're small on this on a planet that is relatively small in even within our solar system, and you know our our little solar system could fit easily inside others. You know, and it's just and and God made all of it. I think that there's a thing that you both mentioned. I don't know if you noticed it. Is that's when you get in nature. Mm-hmm. I think that we as humans can start to think we're doing pretty awesome if we stick to our cities and towns and and that's all we ever see is things that we made. Remember, David was out here in nature. And when David's talking about God's grandeur, he's in grandeur now. And and it gives you a different perspective. I and Karen, I want you to pitch in here too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Karen lived in Alaska. My parents lived in Alaska and I visited them. um, Although we were in different parts, my folks lived in Anchorage and, and Karen was further north and central. But I never had a personal, spiritual sense of scale ever <laughs> like I did when I got to the mountains in Alaska. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, I am so small in this scale of things. Yeah. I am absolutely all the things that I thought was like, I'm pretty all this was like, I am nothing. I'm like a speck of dust on a windy day doesn't even get noticed in the landscape. (laughs) That's how small I felt in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And it really, it was, it was, it was, it was a spiritual experience where I stepped back and said, forgive me for ever thinking I amounted to anything in the significance of like a physical, like, look at me. I did all, it's like, no, took all that away. Um, and yes, <laughs> yes, I completely agree with that. I lived up there for, I moved up when I was a teenager and I moved away from there in my mid thirties. And um, I remember getting there and just being awestruck. I had a group of friends that were very spontaneous and it was like, 
we'd be driving. There's big spaces between towns and um, we'd be driving and it, and it would it, it would literally be as spontaneous as, whoa, look at that mountain. Do you, do you guys want to climb it? And we would pull over and park the truck and we would all go climb the mountain. And if it took us two days of sleeping on the ground and foraging and melting snow for water, then that's what we did. That's just the kind of, and I, I got to climb all over that space. So then fast forward a few years, I buy my first house and um, the only house that I owned up there. And I would, it, it was on a, there's a ridge. So I was, I was in Fairbanks. And there's a ridge of hills that goes around to the north of Fairbanks. And every morning I would drive down off of that ridge of hills. And and it would just, this the view right across the street from my house was a scenic overlook. Like that's, that's what we're talking about here. Like people would take their dates up there to wow them and have a special moment. And, and that's where I lived. And the whole valley would open up and there'd be this tiny little ribbon of river here and there and this tiny little town, you know, putting out its little effort at pollution into the glorious sky. And then beyond that would be a ridge of mountains. And then over here's the Alaska range. And it was how small could I get? Like here, you know, everywhere I go, I see what man has done and what man has created. And unless I go out of my way to look elsewhere, that is where my focus lies. Yes. And in Alaska, it was the exact opposite. Everywhere I looked was nature. And I had to like lower my gaze and focus elsewhere to be like, oh, look, a little tiny blip of man-made whatever. Mm. So the ratio I liked, it was very humbling. It was very sobering. Um, do you guys remember that um, Psalm 8 that David wrote? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set yeah. your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. That's us. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What mm -hmm. are humans that you care for them? Yeah. We're very small and we're fallen. Like yeah. we're not only small, we're fallen. And yet there's this tremendous care that's put out for our, for our well-being and this effort to bring us back. Yeah. It's very, it's very flattering and it's very humbling and it's kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah, it's one of my favorite verses too. It's just mm -hmm. those, one of those, it just has you thinking, just has you thinking about how, how small we are, but yet how much we mean to God. And it's, uh, man, it really puts yes. perspective, really gives you some perspective on things and, and just makes you look at, you You know, you look at the the politics of the world and everybody who's trying to jostle themselves and, 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 and position themselves into some little point of power here. And you just want to go, man, what's the, it, 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 that's, that's so insignificant. What you're trying to do, it doesn't matter what, you know, yeah, it's going to have might have huge significance right here, right now, but in the scheme of of eternity, man, everything you're trying to do right now is nothing. It's right. it's nothing. And you look at some of the the world dictators and how they've how they have just been awful. And it's like, why? What did it get you? Nothing. You know, you look at like Hitler. I mean, it's like, what did it get him? Nothing. He's dead. He's right. dead. You know, granted, he's got this legacy, if you want to call it that, on the planet, 
of 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 uh, you know we're never going to forget <laughs> we're never going to forget Adolf Hitler on on planet Earth. But what did it get him? Ultimately, nothing. He's in the grave, like all of us end up. But that's a classic example of how your perspective gets skewed when you focus on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like the thing, the things that we value and the actions that we take and the things that we drive towards are are total reflections of where our mind is focused. So, there you go. Mm-hmm. I, and I guess just just full circle. That's why God circles back to to David in this request. And when you think about it, is that. David's saying, well, I'm going to take you from a tent and make you a nice house. Uh, We're talking about God who made the Milky Way and (laughs) the Eagle Nebula. It's like, keep your house. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of like, well, okay, so I'll move you from a regular trailer to a double wide trailer. Now you're and and, you know, from our perspective, it is big deal. Right. But from God's perspective, it's just like, thank you for the thought. However, very cute. (laughs) But he but he still condescends and not in a condescending way. This is important to answer, David, and to say thank you. But here's the perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty awesome thing. And as long as David sticks with this, that's the thing. As long as David keeps perspective, he does pretty well. But when David loses perspective and he kind of puts himself central, he ends up in trouble. And that's some foreshadowing uh, in David's life. Mm, Yeah. But when he keeps perspective and when he keeps asking, he's blessed and things go well. Right. I think it is in that perspective. And, you know, that kind of takes us to the next chapter in his, his military campaigns and victories and and I don't know if you guys looked it up, but I know we had talked about this like early on when you could go to the maps. And it's incredible to see that the distance that this covered, that David covered. He really did, like we said in the beginning of today's segment, that he cleared out a lot of space mm-hmm. that's just seen throughout the Bible. There was that uh, the app that you mentioned. Eric, do you remember what it's called? I'm yeah, gonna... it's just called Bible Maps. And um, and if you look from from Jordan and Jerusalem all the way to Euphrates, where it covers, that's a a huge distance. Yeah. It's probably we're looking at 150, 200 miles, which is which is an incredible distance at that point. Yeah, but, it's made. It, the app is by Plowboy, like to plow the ground. P L O U G H. Right, and yep. it's just called Bible Map. Yep. So. Jerusalem to Euphrates, huge section. And if you look up that too, this is the first time that I've seen this here. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but garrisons, that he set up garrisons along the way. Yeah. Because it was such a huge territory and that they're branching out and pushing out. And even if you look at the cedars that he got from uh, the king of Tyre, that that's that's even with his, within his region. It's not a different country or anything that's still within the scope of where he's going. It extends past there. So he yeah, covered a, a lot of land and cleared a lot of space. Well, when David David gets the message, it's, he, he immediately um, does what David does best, it seems, and jumps right into <laughs> pushing people out 
chapter chapter eight goes into it says well the title of chapter eight is david's further conquests and it doesn't even it doesn't spend a whole lot of time here because it's almost like it almost seems to me like it's um this is just what david does starts out with he attacked the Philistines and subdued them. How long had Saul had the Philistines messing with things in Israel? It's like they were just they were always this this splinter, you know, in your in your little finger for Israel. And Saul never really took care of business there. And when David has a chance, he just it, he, he just takes care of it, gets him out. of It gets one verse. One verse, and David's taken care of the Philistines. He attacked the Philistines and subdued them. End of story. All these other names that we've heard about before, it's like, oh, these people have been trouble, and these people have been trouble, and they come back because people do not stay with it. They get a break during uh, Solomon's reign. But David pretty much, I mean, Philistines, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Ammonites— Anyone who shows up to cause trouble gets and he takes up. from them what they're known for. Their their claim to fame, their military prowess, he takes that from them. He takes their chariots. He yep. takes their golden um, shields. He takes their bronze spears. He's just basically, I don't even know how to how to explain it really, but he's just running rampant over them and 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 destroying them as he goes taking them, leaving them pretty much unable to fight anymore, and then just keeps extending the, the kingdom. Yeah, there's mention there of garrisons like you talked about in Syria, Edom. So the idea that 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 not only is he pushing them out, but he's he's uh, setting up he's setting up uh, it, it, military power even in the areas that have been uh, uh, trouble for him in the past there's there's mention of a king from hamath who sends him gifts for defeating uh, king hadadezer of zobah so he's kicking butt and taking names and the other kings are they're either grateful or they want to get on his good side i'm not i'm not 100 sure which way that's going there but um and zobah is is about 200 miles away 150 200 miles away so and he's literally up to the Euphrates River. Well, we get into David's administration. There's a but there's it's only a few verses, but there's a bunch of names of men who get named as generals, priests, um, recorders, chief ministers. I had to I had to chuckle a little bit here because the name of the scribe, if you read the name of the scribe in Second Samuel, it's written down as Sariah, but then in chronicles it's written down as shavsa and i'm thinking boy you would think that the scribe would have made a better <laughs> made a little better effort of, of recording his own name <laughs> that just that just made me chuckle a little bit there that you have that uh that sort of discrepancy between the two books but it's you know it's some of that can be cultural because we see yes. this about the bible i taught um in micronesia years ago and i remember a kid turned in a paper and i'm like Who's this from? This isn't your name. He goes, Yeah, it is. I'm like, but that wasn't your name yesterday. He's like, Yeah, it's my name today. I'm like, that's you're <laughs> blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like being today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, right. 
Let's see, 2 Samuel 9. Now, 2 Samuel 9 did not have a corresponding chapter with Chronicles, so that's kind of of interest here. But it talks about David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Now, David had, he had promised to Jonathan that he would take care of, of that family. And, and he's keeping that promise here. So I really like this story. And the reason I like this story is because of what the more traditional thing to do is, which is the incoming power wipes out all the remaining possible inheritors or descendants of the previous power. And I just, I love this story. There's, and if anybody, if anybody really likes uh, songs. There's a song called Carried to the Table that's based on this story. Mm. And it's basic. okay, so we know that Mephibosheth was lame. Both of his feet were lame. And so that's where this carried to the table idea comes from. So he, by, by secular right of king, he should have been killed as, as a survivor of the previous king's descendants. And yet David instead sets him up with an inheritance. And and so the song is a comparison between how David does this for Mephibosheth, well, that's hard to say, and we we should have no rights at the king's table. And yet, and like, this is how we can't even get there on our own two feet. And so God sends Jesus and Jesus makes the way. What was the name of that song? Carried to the Table? Yeah. I'll have to see if I can find it and post a link to it. Yeah, it's a neat story. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and again, it's showing it's showing an aspect of David's character that is just so unlike what we generally think of uh, in, in at terms of royalty. Because, you know, you think of royalty and you think of, you know, someone who's elite, above everybody else, has special rights, has special uh, 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 treatment. And you think about that. I mean, what is royalties? You know, a lot of times, especially today, you, you know, we we get fascinated by, like, by British royalty. And you think about, you know, why? What do they? You know, what really do they have? I mean, they're completely propped up just by uh, the people supporting them. And and uh, my opinion, they don't really contribute a whole lot to the to the world. But yet, they're considered this amazing, uh, this great legacy to be followed but here david is he's just he just continues to show humility and and takes this guy in and i mean let's face it you take in and yeah okay david had servants that probably did a lot of the work for him but you take in a guy who can't even walk i make that sound really bad but i mean the the the, the guy can't walk he's he's going to be it's not going to be easy necessarily to take care of him but yet david is going to treat him like family you're you're you know you're the you're the son of my best friend and you're going to eat at my table every single day and he restores saul's land all of saul's land everything that saul i guess personally owned gets restored to mephibosheth and some so his his servants they're going to tend that land for him so like you say this eric this whole inheritance gets reestablished to uh mephibosheth 
can you look at it like on a like on a salvation kind of level? You know, are we like Meshibbeth, where yeah. you know God, it, we're lame, we're crippled. God extends this to us and says, you know what, you're gonna because he told the told Israel this in Deuteronomy, even back to Deuteronomy, you're gonna live in houses that you didn't build. Yeah, you're gonna yeah. prosper off a land that you didn't work. And this is exactly what happens to Meshibbeth is that, you know what, he's lame. He can't do that. Everything is restored to him that was originally promised to him just based on his lineage. That now he can't work those fields. He can't work the vineyards. Somebody else is going to do that, and you're going to sit at my table, the king's table, and you're going to eat every day of your life and be taken care of. So I'm just going to drop this out here. Here's the English teacher in in me coming up. (laughs) There is some foreshadowing here. And it's sad. We're going to see Mephibosheth later. And we're going to see Ziba later. And they, I know Matt talks a lot about this, is freedom of choice. Our conscience, our ability to make decisions as to whose side we cast our lot on. We always have that opportunity. And if you want to read ahead, you can read ahead to 2 Samuel 16. It's not going to make much sense unless you start reading at 15. But basically... The context of this is really important. We, I do, I do believe that this is in here, and I do believe that this is a spiritual analogy, is that we have opportunity to receive this grace, and we have opportunity to reject it. Serious stuff. Yeah, I'll look forward to that. That'll be coming up for us in the next week or two. Second Samuel chapter 10 corresponds with First Chronicles chapter 19, and... We get this kind of interesting story here. The king of the Ammonites dies. Um, did we get his name? I don't know. I don't know if it's. I don't know if we do. It's not really important. And his son has taken his place. His son is named Hanun. And David declares. He says. He says he's going to show kindness to this son because he says his father showed kindness to me. I don't remember hearing that story because when I'm looking back at the the last time we heard about a king of Ammonites. That was King, I don't remember. The only king that I remember is the king who who got defeated at Jabesh Gilead. Well, no, he wanted to make, the people of Jabesh Gilead wanted to make a treaty with him. And he said, yeah, fine, but let me put out your right eyes. And ultimately he had to get driven off of there. So this kindness that David is talking about has me a bit uh, perplexed. Were you confused by that at all? Did I miss something? Am I forgetting something? I didn't. I didn't really catch the the original part of the history. Now, what struck me was the idea is that here's a new king. He's got to feel like he's got to flex, and we see the same thing happen with Solomon's son. First thing is he gets power, and just like this, the king's advisors, who probably grew up with him who they lack wisdom and they lack diplomacy and they all say, yeah, let's flex on him. And they treat David's gracious emissaries with contempt and put shame on them, which in this culture is like the worst thing you could do is they shame David's messengers and man, did they open up a can and I think it goes along with that concept. Sometimes you have to look for the biggest person to try to, you know, start something with to prove your point. And a lot of times it doesn't go well for you. 
is kind of how this kind of turns out. That's exactly how this turns out. Yeah, it's an interesting case of uh, just suspicion. Because David sends some emissaries to go to this Hanun to try to uh, give him a little support for, uh, you know, during during a time of mourning. The man's, his father is dead, has died. Uh, it would be a sad time in the kingdom. And David sends emissaries to go, you know, go comfort this guy. And all of his advisors are like, no, they're here to spy on us. That's the only, that's the only thing that could be possibly happening here is that, is that David's men are here to spy on us. And so they do this, like you say, uh, humiliating them. They shave off, what did it say, half of their beards. And they cut off their clothes, it says, at the buttocks. So they basically cut their clothes in half. You know, I don't know, does that leave them nude from the waist down? Maybe. But it, it's very it's very much just a, just a slap in the face towards what's meant to be a kindness. And it turns around, they turn around to an insult. And, you know, they go back to David and, and David says, well, okay, go... Uh, you know, go let your beards grow back, and and um, and then you can come rejoin us. But the, the Ammonites, I guess the the Ammonites. I don't know if it's the Ammonite people or some of the they 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 realize they've kind of messed up. I think because it says that they recognized that they. How did it put it? They um, stench. Say that again. They had become a stench, is how my put it. Ah, yeah, that's not exactly how mine put it, but it but that that definitely works here. They have realized that that they have they have messed up and and really made an enemy of David that they didn't necessarily have to have before, and th- they decide to hire some Syrian mercenaries to go up against Israel. They get it's a I, the the count there was something like thirty two thousand men, and uh, in chariots, and then depending on which which book there you're reading, some of it was thirty two thousand chariots, and then and then. Um, Others was, you know, different foot soldiers and whatnot. But regardless, you get a pretty good company, a pretty good uh, a group of Syrians that get hired to come face off against the Israelites. And the Ammonites and the Syrians, they come together to attack Jerusalem. So, I mean, that's interesting to me, too. It's like, OK, you're the guys who decided to insult and now you're coming at me. Like. Where do you where, where do you, where do you get off on this? Where do you why do you think that you are justified first in insulting us and then in attacking us as if as if we've done something to you? But this is what they're doing, and they 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 decide to team they team up and they come up to Jerusalem. It says in battle array, and Joab sets things up. It says that he took some of the best men of Israel. And he sets them up against the Syrians, and he sets up Abishai with some men and puts them against the Ammonites. And it's basically, well, if 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 uh, our battle goes bad, you can help me, and if your battle goes bad, we're going to help you. And the short story of it is that Joab's men drive off the Syrians, and then the Ammonites see that the Syrians are running away, these guys that they've hired, and so they take off and flee too. But if you, when you get to 17, you see exactly like what we were talking about before with David is that David killed 7,000 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen, 
yeah, these are big numbers. These aren't, and and mm-hmm. it's always been that way with David. Huge numbers of people he's killed, and I think that goes back to just that. You know what? It just wasn't his job to to build a temple. He was there, like we said in the beginning, to do the dirty work. Yep. For Israel to really do what it needed to, or to be what it needed to be, it had to have, it had to have space. It had to have a place to grow. You know this 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 religion, this culture that God was trying to establish in that area needed geographical area to happen. And so that, that was, that was David's job to push these guys back. And he's doing a, he's doing a good job of it, but the Syrians, they see they've defeated. And now it seems like of their own volition. Now they start to gather forces together to, to rise up against Israel on their own. Cause now it's not so much, uh, uh, the the Ammonites that they're trying to work with and you know, protect, is that the right word? Or, you know, fight for, but just on their own, they're, uh, I don't know, are they feeling a little mm, insignificant? Are they feeling like, like they need to, they need to prove something here? But they're on the, now they're on the east side of the Jordan and they start to gather forces and David hears about it. And again, here's where you see that this is this is David taking on the job that that he was he was put in place for. He goes, nope, that ain't going to happen. And he goes over, crosses the Jordan and the Syrians try to fight. But like, yeah, David kills 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen, uh, talks. He kills their commander of their army, uh, Shobach. And and just puts a smackdown on them, and uh, that's pretty much it for the Syrians at this point, at least anyway. Because says the the Syrian kings under Habadazer, they they see that they're defeated, and they decide to make peace with Israel. And it says I, that the, the I like how that ends though. And the, so the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Basically saying, you know what, we're not going to, yeah. You know, yeah, we're not good good things, and even with uh, mercenaries to wars to get involved in. Right. My <clears throat> my favorite part of this whole story was in um, chapter ten, verse eh, where is it twelve, where Joab is saying, "Well, if if they get too strong for you, we'll come help, and if ours get too strong for us, then you come help." Right, and he ends that whole thing by saying. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. I like that. Like even even the leader of the troops has his perspective in the right place. Mm-hmm. Looks like that's going to be about the end of our discussion for this week. Next week, we are going to continue in 2 Samuel. We're going to read chapters 11 through 15. We are going to sneak Psalm 51 in there, and we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Maybe not in that order, but we'll discuss all of those next week. While you are waiting for that, you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org with your questions and comments or concerns. I know we can't be answering all your questions here on the podcast, because uh, sometimes even I walk away with, with questions considering what we've talked about. So please feel free to to, uh, send those questions and comments to us. You can look for us on Facebook 
And be sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family. And be sure to subscribe so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.